Uh, I started a new book, and a new audio book on Monday afternoon. Uh, finished it, uh, probably, I think it was Wednesday morning. Uh, it was a 10-hour book, but I couldn't get enough of it. It was uh, Matthew McConaughey's book, uh, Green Lights. Uh, little P.S., not a kid book, so if you go and listen to it, Put it in your ears. Do not listen to it around your kids. It's a little wild. Uh, but uh, one, of the, one of the scenes, he's talking about his childhood. And uh, he talks about a scene where his mom and dad, his dad comes home from work, is eating a meal. And uh, his mom starts chirping. And all of a sudden, like it leads to an argument where the mom grabs the phone, uh, punches him across the face with the phone, breaks his nose, he grabs a ketchup bottle, starts flinging ketchup around the, uh, around the kitchen. It was his blood, it was ketchup, and all of a sudden he says they were uh, kissing and making up on the, on the kitchen floor. It was just like, what is this book all about? I couldn't get enough of it. It was wild. It was poetic. It was, uh, it was him talking about bumper stickers that have meaning to him and what he's seen on his, his travel across the country. It was things that he wrote in his journal for the last 35 years. He wrote it as a 50-year-old man, and, and the journal that he kept, poems that he wrote, uh, answers to some of life's questions that he was thinking of and some questions that he still has, but he hasn't quite found answers yet, too. It was just so poetic how he wrestled and got through life and all of the turbulence that life is. If you were to write a memoir, if you were to write the story of your life, what would be the title? What would you talk about? How would, did you navigate the ups and downs of life? How would you explain that to the generations to come uh, about if they were to read the story of your life? Would it be poetic? Would you talk about how you got kicked in the pants and now you found your way to push forward and to rebuild? Today I want to look at perhaps the greatest poet in all of Scripture, King David, uh, the, first, the second king of, of Israel. He had a life of ups and downs, and somehow he was able to stay connected to God and navigate his way through it. I want us to see how he is surrounded by people that literally want to kill him and destroy him. I want, to see, I want us to see the depressing, dire state that he finds himself in and how in the end he is resolved and fixated on God. And that brings him utter satisfaction. So would you guys turn in your Bibles or on the screen or in the app to Psalm 17, uh, where David writes this to start it off. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Have you been there where you've cried out to God? Free, uh, I mean, from your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by the night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. He talks about two different ways of living. He talks about how there's the just way and the, and the unrighteous way, the unjust way, that I have chosen a better path. My life is different than those that have come my way and seek to kill me. He talks through this, this first opening section of this, of this poetic uh, journal entry, if you will, to David's life. He's talking about, God, look, 
You visited me at night. God, think about my words. God, think about my, test me. You'll find nothing. This situation is dire and all through it. David is inviting God to examine him at his core because he is confident that this is a plea of vindication. They are wrong, and I am in the right. God, examine me. Look, look through your word by your, by your judgments, by what you have said is right and wrong. Examine my life. You will find nothing there that goes against this. God, vindicate me. Could we invite the chaos that is in your life. It's not always because of, of trouble that we have brought on ourselves, but sometimes it is. Could we examine ourselves and say the exact same thing that David is saying? The reason that why my screen time was down 22% last week uh, and the reason why I finished uh, this book in, in all of, uh, I guess, three days uh, was because last week and for the time moving forward, I'm, uh, I'm grounded uh, and yes, I'm a 37-year-old father, but I'm telling you, uh, I am grounded. And so uh, last week, incredible week uh, with church and whatnot, got, got out of the first experience and uh, going to the back room. And, and one of my kids uh, had a situation uh, where they spoke very poorly uh, to, a, to a well-youth lead and, uh, and it, in disrespect and like a, a well-youth lead that's poured a lot of time in. It, it just, it, it, all of a sudden, I was enraged. I raised my voice. I said very derogatory things towards him. It was not a good situation because my blood was boiling. If you're a parent, you've been there. It, it does happen. How do we respond? And so a few minutes later, Ava just turns to me and says, Jason, you're wrong. And I was like, oh, you're right. <laughs> so I walk in back into the room and my boy's crying. And I was like, you know what? You're wrong. I'm wrong. We're both wrong. And so I grabbed a, a communion cup. And uh, we both took communion together and said, hey, we're not on the same page right now, but we're going to take communion and we're going to move forward uh, in being united in Christ Jesus. That unifies us and uh, that the blood of Jesus forgives both of us. And so after church, uh, we will talk about uh, your punishment, but for now, we are going to move forward unified in this. And I emailed the elders asking their forgiveness and also admitting that like, I need, I, this is an area I need to work on. And, uh, and so after church, uh, my, my son was grounded uh, from TV and his tablet and all things electronics. And I was like, well, you were wrong for X. And my response was equally wrong. And so if, it's, if you're going to get punished, daddy has to do the same thing. Uh, and so I'm not allowed to play Catan on my phone. Uh, and I am not allowed to watch TV, which I do while I work out. Uh, and so I listened to a book while I was working out. And uh, that's why my screen time was also down because I couldn't look at the situation that brought chaos in my life and say, God, vindicate me because there was wrong in my life. And it took Ava's gentle word for me to examine and say, you know what? I can't say like David that there is nothing wrong here on my end. How do you when life, when you, when you go to your journal and you're writing and you're lamenting over a situation, maybe it's relational conflict, how do you bring about a, a self-examination? Where is your role in that? So before we go on to the next stanza that, that, that David is writing about, I, I, want, I want to suggest four things that I think are just simply true in my life. This isn't an exhaustive list by any means, but how can we bring self-examination into our own lives because it's healthy, because it betters us if we do something about it? The first one is soap. 
It rocks me every time I, I read a few verses in God's word. Then I go, to, I go to start journaling and I, scripture, observation, application, prayer. You can find the how-to on our website for how to go about soul. But every time I read a few verses, God shows me, this is what it looks like to follow after me. This is what it looks like to walk like Jesus. Jason, you have so far to go. And it kicks me in the pants and I'm better for it, I The second one is trusted friends. And so I mean this trusted friends. I mean trusted friends by the person that's going to say a soft, gentle word to you that you may not want to hear, but you need to hear. A person who is is themselves in prayer, themselves in the word of God that will look at you and say, you know what? Yeah, sleeping with your boyfriend to get you to like him. Hey, keep on keeping on what you want to hear. But the friend that's going to say, no, God has better for you? Who are the trusted friends that that can speak into your life? And to take that now a step further is who has access? You know, I can can counsel with somebody and and they can say to me, I'm going through a divorce and it's all my wife's fault. She is the absolute worst. All right, well, I'm sure you have a friend that knows both of you. Well, you know what? Let's call them right now and see what what their perception is. Well, I don't don't have any friends like like that 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 know us like that. What well, it sounds like you don't you have acquaintances but no friends. It's those people that can go deeper and deeper and have access. It can't be everybody, it can't be the whole community, but are there one or two or three that know you so well that are willing to say, This is not good. I know your thinking, I know your motives. On the outside it might be okay, but on the inside, I have access into your life. You've granted me that and I have a voice to speak. Will they use it? to be a voice of reason and from God. And then lastly, something that I've been accustomed to doing, actually kind of flowing from soap, is study what you sense. God has put in my heart sometimes that like I'm unforgiving or I'm unloving or that there might be malice in my heart. That was something recent, that malice. I was like, what's malice? I was like, I don't, well, what is that? And so I just Googled malice, 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 and I was reading up on it. I was like, crap, God might be right. There might be malice in my heart. And so what, what you sense in your life, maybe it's time to study and figure out, is this really true in me? So David, David continues and he says, I will call upon you and, and for you will answer me, oh God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words, wondrously show your steadfast love. Oh Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, though they close their hearts to pity, their mouths speak arrogantly. They have, they have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us into the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, a young lion lurking to ambush. David, this is poetry. He's going back and forth. He's talking about an enemy that is arrogant, fat, greedy, prideful, wicked, oppressive. He is surrounded. They are like a lion lurking, waiting to ambush. They they desire to see another human being destroyed. David is being emotional. David is writing what he is feeling. But do you catch what he's also doing? He's also going to truth. How often do our emotions lie to us? How often do our emotions have us thinking a way about God 
where God has a way of reminding us of truth that is contrary to our emotions. And so he, he has these emotions that he's lamenting out about his enemy, but he's also saying, God, I'm at the apple of your eye. God, here's, I may not feel this way right now, but I can take refuge under your wings. God, you, you love me. God, your steadfast love. God, you are there for me. I think the reason why David is able to get to this place is because of where he goes to first. He is surrounded. He's talking about like how he, he might soon die. And where does he go? I will call upon you, Lord. That is worship. Where we go first communicates priority, which communicates worship. When life has hit the fan, are you going to mommy or daddy first? Are they God? Are you going to your kids to save you? Are they God? Are you going to a coworker to save you? Are they God? Are you going to your BFF? Are they God? Are you going to Google to save you? Are they God? Are you going to your counselor to save you? Are they God? Now, God can use all of those things, and he does use those things. But where do you go to first? I heard, I heard it said like this, that worship is like an old word uh, that they used to use called worship. And it, it's defined like this. The condition of being worthy or deserving worthiness. If we want to worship God, we ascribe him worth. Lifestyle worship is best seen into who you go to first because it communicates priority. When you need something in your life, whose voice do you go to first to speak loudest into your life? When you're thinking about the chaos of life and what are you going to do with your, your time, who gets first priority of your time communicates worth-ship. Who gets the best of your time? Worth-ship. When you get your paycheck, who gets the first fruits of your paycheck? Worth-ship. When it comes time to prayer, is it a last resort or a first resort? Worth-ship. If you want to live a life of worship, it begins and ends with Jesus. He is made first priority. And when that is true, you will live a life of worship. And David is getting to that point. And now he goes to arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked your, by your sword, from the men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. It sounds hunky-dory. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. He talks about two different perspectives here, two different ways of living. He's going back to that place while calling God to act, calling God to protect him. He's also saying, hey, treat them, treat me differently. Subdue them, deliver me. God, I need you. And he's coming to a point, though, of realization about his enemy. They have their fill in this life because this life is the best it will ever get for them. To have everything but also have God's judgment is to have nothing. The wicked will one day encounter God. Their hope for enjoyment is here. The best 
the world will ever get, the worldly, the best it will ever get for them is here. For us, look around. Know your Jesus. This life is the worst it will ever be for us. And God, David is coming to that realization that no matter how this plays out, it plays out differently for him because one day he will awake and one day he will be eternally satisfied where he will see God Almighty, righteous God, face to face, the God who fills, the God who rewards, the God who treasures and gives of his treasure. That is my God. And we say amen to that, that one day, no matter what this life brings us for the Christian, we will be there face to face with the God in which we worship and we will be made like him in all of perfection. This is a psalm that looks at the world and says, the lowlands, oh, I am in the pit, and I, by the end of it, when I shift my perspective back to the God who fills, who treasures, who gives, I am satisfied. So why? Why would we look at the world, even the world that is coming at us, and want their life? Why would we compare what we are going through to that of the worldly? We're looking at their Instagram reel and saying, I want that. My God doesn't bless because I look at a worldly person's Instagram reel. Let me tell you an Instagram reel. Here's, here's a character that we might, we, might follow, we, might have, we might have followed on social media if it was existed back in the day. Somebody, if you were to count for inflation, was worth $150 million when they died. Somebody who was able to be rejected and rise above. Somebody who was able to inspire the masses Somebody who, who had a following. Somebody who wrote a book, and that book was, was sold millions and millions of times, over 10 million times. We might look at a worldly person's highlight reel and say, well, God, why aren't you blessing me? Until we realize what their end is like and what's really happening behind the scenes. Because for, for exaggeration, and it's not exaggeration, those are true things about Adolf Hitler. We could look at his, his, his reel, his highlight reel, and many in Germany did they looked at his highlight reel and said, this isn't so bad, which is why the Germans, when the war was over, had to walk through the concentration camps to get a reality of this wasn't what you thought it was. This was deeper. This was darker. This was an act against humanity. It was awful. Sometimes we compare ourselves to people we should never compare ourselves to. Comparison is a thief of joy. Comparison is a destruction against myself as I allow comparison to others to stifle my satisfaction in Christ. That, that no matter where you are, man, you, you, may have, you may have lost a deal on your house, but there are some people that are homeless killing to even have an opportunity to consider a house. You might, you might even, let's, just, let's go to the bottom here. You might be homeless here in our community, and yet there might be some people wishing that they were homeless in America versus homelessness in their country. That there is always an element of comparison that there might be people looking at us and seeing us as blessed. Comparison causes me to size up God based off of my perception on how he's blessing others while minimizing how he has blessed me. Comparison for me leaves me depressed. Comparison for me leaves me wanting more. But when I go to gratitude, I am always satisfied. Why would we look to the unchurched? Do they really have a better life? Does, will their life end better? We may look at others, the worldly people, and say, hey, that they're prosperous, but will their life end prosperous? 
We may look at others and say, oh, they are eternally satisfied. But when they die, will that be true? When we know our God, we know that there is hope for us, even in the most hopeless situations here on earth. We know that when we look upon the face of God in gratitude, that we are the only ones on planet earth with hope to offer and eternal satisfaction. And so our thought for this experience, if you're tuning in online or if you're in this room, is simply this. In the deepest of depressions, God offers himself as our satisfaction. Himself. You want to be satisfied? Then take Jesus as your own. And I know it's an easy how-to. And here, here I, want, I want to first clarify, too. When I say depression, I know there are various different levels of depression. There's clinical, there's temporary, there's seasonal. And I know that if it's clinical, you need to go and you need to talk to a professional and, and, and what they prescribe and their suggestions there and all of things. I'm not minimizing that and just simply saying, well, if you just read your Bible more, all would be okay. I am simply saying that any solution to a depressing feeling, thought, or season must be soaked in Jesus or it will never be an eternal feeling. For me, I saw this personally play out. I sometimes struggle from that temporary and seasonal type depression. This played out for me last week. We had our birthday. It was a celebration. We had cupcakes. Who can be depressed when you're eating a cupcake? But here I was. Had a great Sunday. We're going to talk about, uh, we're going to announce how much came in for, for the, um, uh, the Casa Foundation and uh, how much we're going to donate to them. We have a two-week campaign going. This is the last week for it. Uh, we're going to mention that at Easter. But let me just tell you, after one day, I'm very excited to tell you what's going to happen, and we'll tell you that on Easter. We had a great attendance. I saw people that said, hey, when I get vaccinated, I'm going to start coming back to church. I saw their faces. I gave them hugs. I saw faces I haven't seen in a while that used our birthday as a reason. I, it was such an amazing Sunday. And then I go back to my computer, and I open up my email, and I got two stupid emails. And I went home depressed. I couldn't stop thinking about two stupid emails. I was in a funk. I couldn't see all the good that God did during the morning. All I could think about was two stupid emails. And, and it was, put me in a funk. And so I, in, the, in the afternoon, I, I listened uh, to a sermon trying to get myself out of this funk. And, and it didn't really penetrate, but it did show me a verse that I wanted to. I was like, you know what, tomorrow morning, I need to see this. Because my, my eyes have been taken off. I know I'm not in a good headspace. And it was all fixated on two stupid things. And here's, here's that verse. So we do not lose heart. The, though our outer self is wasting away. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul talking. Self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And, and he goes on to talk about the seen and the unseen. He talks about how I'm, I, this hit me. I was like, I'm working on this Monday morning where I'm still in that funk. And I'm like, Paul is talking about persecution as light and momentary. He was persecuted in a way that we will never experience persecution here in America, likely in our lifetime. And yet he is calling much deeper persecution than we experience as light and momentary. How can that dude, he must be smoking some type of new plant to be able to say that. Why did he say that? Because his eyes were on the future. Because his eyes was on his God. He goes on to talk about the seen and the unseen, and that we fixate ourselves on the unseen, which sounds counterintuitive to the world. 
But if you're a follower of Jesus, you know full well, you concentrate on the Lord God Almighty and it brings perspective to the here and the now that this is light and this is temporary to what we will experience as Christians in all of eternity. The verse that hits me often when I'm in these moods and these moments is is Hebrews uh, chapter 12. Where the author writes, let us therefore be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's never the end for those that are in the kingdom of God. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. This short little verse always shows me that when I'm in my mood, when I'm like David writing a psalm but not getting to that last verse where I'm satisfied in God, It always shows me that I I don't have reverence. I don't have awe. I've lost awe. I can't come in here and sing. It wrecks me because I'm I'm in my headspace. I'm focused on what I think I can see when God's trying to reshift my focus. How does he reshift your focus to bring you to a place like, like David that can say, I'm satisfied in you. And it's right there in the beginning. I lose sight of gratefulness. I lose sight of getting beyond myself and just being thankful, simply being thankful. And so that's my challenge to you. You guys came in and, uh, and you have a, a, a note card and a pen, brand new pen, hasn't been touched, okay, so you're, you're good. Uh, and so uh, you have a note card and a pen. I'm gonna invite you right now in this moment, in your seat to write down 15 things that you are thankful for. So number it one through 15. I'm gonna give you numbers 14 and 15. I did this this morning before I came to church and it it really helped me. Here's number 14 and 15. Perfect Jesus died for broken me. Number 15, broken me receives his perfect resurrection life. So in a moment, the band's gonna come up and we're gonna sing a song called Sea of Victory. But here's, here's what I'm going to challenge you. I'm challenging you, and if you're online, drop where you're grateful in, in the comments. But not to stand and sing until you've done two things, until you have filled out all 15, and then secondly, you got a communion cup on your way in. It's only appropriate for us, before we go into a time of worship, before we consider all that life has going on, as we self-examine our lives, to remember the sacrifice of our Jesus that covers it all, that has to bring us to a place of gratitude. And so I invite you, write those 15, I'm gonna hear explain communion. I'll pray for communion. Then I'm gonna get off the stage. I'm asking you not to stand until you've written the 15, then take communion on your own, and then stand and sing, see a victory. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, which is the, the wafer, uh, represented by the wafer in the top of your communion cup. He took bread and said, my body is broken for you. As often as you get together, do this in remembrance for me. Then he, he passed around a cup The cup representing a new relationship, a new covenant that was purchased and established by the blood of Jesus, that his blood was spilt for broken me. And that we get to celebrate that, we get to remember that day in and day out. So I'm gonna pray. Pray for communion. Walk off the stage and just invite you. Write those 15, take communion on your own and then stand and worship. God, I thank you for this time. God, I thank you for these people. God, I thank you that in the the darkest moments of our life that you are called light as a reason. Father, that you shine. You, You 
All your work is best. All your work is great. But Father, we realize the greatness of your work when we allow that light to penetrate the darkness. So Father, I thank you. I pray right now in this moment as we write these 15 things, as we take communion, as we sing this song, Father, would you help us to leave here with a much different perspective than when we walked in? We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.